Well, following Jesus Christ, of course, requires faith. Uh, from the very first step until the very last, you will need faith to follow him every single step of the way. Faith to hope when uh, things seem hopeless. Faith to continue when you've every reason to quit. Faith for the impossible to be made possible. You'll need faith for strength when all your strength is gone. You'll need faith to guide you when you've lost your way. Faith to overcome when the pressures of this life are bearing down on you as they do for all of us at times. Faith for victory when defeat seems inevitable and probably more faith than you could ever imagine to accomplish all that he has created you for. In fact, our very salvation in Jesus Christ only happens by his grace through our faith as the Apostle Paul explains in Ephesians 2.8. You see, there, there's really no version of an authentic Christian life that can survive, let alone thrive, without faith. And that is, of course, by God's design. In fact, uh, Hebrews 11.6 says, without faith, it is impossible to please him, which means when Jesus calls us to follow him, he's calling us to an entire lifetime of living by faith day by day, sometimes even moment by moment, because when we live by faith, what is ahead of us is at times a great unknown. Uh, James, the brother of Jesus, wrote to the church, come now, you who say today or tomorrow we will go into such and such town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit, yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that, James 4, 13 through 15. We simply do not know what tomorrow holds. We do not know all that he has planned for us, but one thing we can be certain of without question or reservation is that he does have a plan for every single one of our lives and every moment of that plan. Wherever he leads us to go and whatever he leads us to do, if we are truly following Jesus Christ, every step of that journey will demand our faith. Now, most likely, for many of you at least, none of that is probably new information. You've probably heard some version of that before many times in sermons and Bible studies and small groups and so on, which is great, except for the fact that most people don't actually live that way. I'm talking about Christians. In fact, most of us in Western society have been programmed from childhood to structure our lives in such a way that little to no faith is required to live a comfortable and relatively secure and prosperous lifestyle. We have become so risk-averse in our culture that we have plans and backup plans to our plans in order to reduce our exposure to risk as much as possible. And yet Jesus made no bones about it. He said, if you decide to truly follow me, you will have to risk everything. He said, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God, Luke 9, 62. That's why the apostle Paul, after describing at length the risks that he and the other disciples lived by day after day after day, Paul said, we walk by faith, not by sight, 2 Corinthians 5, 7. But I honestly wonder how many of us today 
How many believers actually live like that? How many of us walk, uh, walk out our daily lives by faith instead of by sight, instead of by what we can see and plan and uh, predict, right? Because we can see our budgets, we can see our insurance policies, we can see our retirement plans, we can see our investment portfolios, right? We can see our career path, we can see our net worth, we can see our plans for our kids and their future, their education. In fact, most of us can see far into the future and project where our plans will take us. And if those plans don't go as planned, we have backup plans so that we can still see a way of avoiding risk should the future become uncertain. It's not just long-term planning either. We can see where we're going to lunch each day and who we'll be having it with. We can see our free time and how it will be spent. We can see just about every detail of our lives and how it will unfold because we're constantly working in this culture to make provisions and plans for our lives so as to avoid the unknown. And I wonder, are we walking by faith Or are we walking by sight? It's not that we shouldn't have plans, by the way, at all, or that we shouldn't uh, save money or work to provide for our families. Of course, we should do all of that. But when we leave absolutely no room for the Spirit of God to direct us or guide us with our time and our money and our focus, because every single aspect of our lives has been planned out ahead of time, I wonder, are we walking by faith Or are we walking by sight? I know there are times when most of us exercise faith in our lives, particularly in uh, difficult times. We tend to draw nearer to God because we can't always predict the outcome when life throws us something unexpected. But look, truly walking by faith. The way that Paul describes the life of a disciple of Christ, that kind of faith was characteristic of their daily lives. Day in and day out, they walked by faith, risking everything on a regular basis. And the truth is, that kind of life is completely foreign to most of us. But more than that, it's actually frowned upon even seen as irresponsible and foolish in our culture. And I'm talking about even among those in the church. Are we we walking by faith or are we walking by sight? It may seem totally foreign, even weird for some of us, but when's the last time you took some time to pray? Not just before the really big decisions, but even taking a minute or two to pray before some of the small ones, like, Lord, is there someone you'd like for me to invite to lunch today? Is there someone in particular you want me to talk to at work today? Is there someone you would like for me to pray for? Father, what do you want me to do with this money or with my day off or with my church or with my neighbors? Where do you want me to go today? What do you want me to do today? Not to mention the really big decisions like, Lord, do you want me to sell my house? all my belongings, quit my job and drain my bank accounts to follow you on a completely different trajectory than the one I've been on, the one I can see and have been planning for my entire life. I'll tell you, I've been there personally. You want to talk about risk. You want to talk about unknown. You want to talk about uncertainty. 
chuck everything you've worked for and saved for and start over with just about nothing at 40 years old with a wife and three kids who are depending upon you. Move them 4,500 miles away and start all over again. Why? Because you're following Jesus Christ. Do you know that after uh, we did all of that, me and my family, after giving up nearly everything we had to go to Alaska, because that's what God told us to do, after three years of investing our lives into that church and that community, after uh, going back to school and doing everything that we could to immerse ourselves uh, into that community and those people, we found out that the leadership of that church, those who were over us, were leaving, which meant we needed to prepare to leave as well, because typically in the church world, when new leadership comes into a church, they hire their own staff. And so we began the process of looking for another church to be a part of. And do you know that we looked for over a year and I couldn't pay another church to even consider hiring me? No one would give me the time of day. Talk about uncertain times all over again. Here we are, 4,500 miles away from home. What do we do now? What followed was a lot of prayer and fasting. And out of that, God led us to sell all of our stuff again pack up a car in a U-Haul trailer and drive back here to plant this church where for a long time we had no idea if we would be able to pay our bills, where the money or people would come from or if they would come at all. It was one risk after another after another, one unknown after another, one uncertainty after another all over again. But see, living that way it will require a constant ongoing faith because there's so much uncertainty about what will happen next when you don't have everything planned out. And again, we've been programmed our entire lives to plan as much as possible so as to avoid uncertainty and risks and unknowns like those are bad things. You know, that's exactly how God wants us to live. Because that kind of living necessitates a daily dependence upon him, a willingness to take risks at every turn, a willingness to, be, uh, to being told you're irresponsible with your time and your money and your family and your future. I've heard all of that, a willingness to take a giant leap into a great unknown, all because you're following Jesus Christ and his plan rather than this world and your own plan. And look, for you, it may not be quitting your job and selling uh, your stuff and moving away. For you, it could be any number of things that he calls you to because it's different for all of us. The point is this. Are you walking by faith or are you walking by sight? Are you living your life in such a way that if you don't have faith in him and where he's leading you for each new day, then you will not make it? Or... Is everything so worked out in your life ahead of time that although you believe in Jesus Christ, you certainly don't have to depend upon him? In other words, are you walking by faith or are you walking by sight? And by the way, uh, please don't misconstrue my comments here about my own family's journey as prideful because I know too many people personally who have packed up their families, including young kids, babies, and move to places in this world where they're literally risking their own lives just by sharing the gospel, and yet that is the sole purpose for them moving there. I get it. The, the truth is, the call to follow Jesus will look different 
for each of us. But in every case, if you're truly following him, it will require you to walk by faith. Happens to be the focus of this next chapter in 1 John as we continue our sermon series on the letters of John where the pressures on those early followers of Jesus were mounting from both without and from within the church. There was uh, not only persecution and, and pressure from the Jews and Gentiles for Christians to conform to the culture around them, but there was pressure from within the church as well as there were false teachers rising up among them and they were leading people away from the church with a false gospel, one that only really required them to have faith in themselves and in their own abilities, much like the mantra of our culture today, which champions self-reliance, believing in ourselves, uh, self-esteem, instead of believing in and having esteem for Jesus Christ above all others, including ourselves. And so the Apostle John makes this case to the churches there that one of the, one of the hallmarks of a true follower of Christ as opposed to those who are merely claiming to be Christians is a life that is characterized by faith in Jesus Christ to the point that living without it is no longer an option, which honestly should be the goal of every Christian today for our lives to become so dependent upon Christ that without faith in him to lead us each day, we wouldn't know where to go or what to do. So let's pick up the letter where we left off last week at 1 John chapter 5, and we'll begin with the first five verses. 1 John 5, 1 through 5. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments. And his commandments are not burdensome, for everyone who's been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? So after spending most of the last chapter talking about love, John opens up this chapter with a statement about faith. In fact, uh, out of the 10 references that John makes to the subject of believing throughout the entire letter, seven of those references are here in chapter five. So the focus shifts from the subject of love to the subject of faith. And just as in the last chapter where he says, everyone who loves has been born of God in verse one of chapter four, here in verse 1 of chapter 5, he says, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. So both genuine love and genuine faith are indicators that a person has been born of God. And then again, just as John says we love because he first loved us, back in chapter 4, verse 19, he's making the same case about faith here in verse 1, where he says everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. In other words, in the same way that we can only love God because he first loved us, we can only believe that Jesus is the Christ as he gives us the faith that we need to believe that, as he does that regenerating work in our lives. Just as Paul points out in Ephesians 2.8, again, he says, for grace you've been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. 
So the point is all of the credit for everything pertaining to love and faith and salvation is given to God, which was, by the way, a direct confrontation by John to these false teachers who claimed that salvation ultimately came from within oneself, and yet they were still claiming to be Christians while denying Jesus as the Christ. They didn't deny that Jesus, uh, that there was a Christ, excuse me, but they denied that Jesus was the Christ. Their leader, Serenthus, Uh, of these false teachers, he taught that the Christ came upon Jesus at his water baptism and then departed from him at the crucifixion so that Jesus and the Christ were actually two separate and distinct individuals. And do you know, there are many new age religionists today who claim that just as Jesus had the Christ spirit uh, upon himself for a period of time, so did many other religious leaders like Confucius and Muhammad and Buddha and many others, which is why John is so careful with his words to say that everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ, not had the Christ, but is the Christ, has been born of God. And it is therefore only those who are truly Christians that believe that Jesus is the Christ, not these false teachers, right? And, and then John says, faith and love then are evidence that we've been born of God. And so those who are born of God are compelled to obey his commandments. And then he says something very important when it comes to understanding the relationship between our faith and carrying out the will of God. John says God's commandments are not burdensome. For everyone who's been born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory, he says, that has overcome the world, our faith. So if the commands of God, the will of God for our lives, is not burdensome, then the problem with obeying his commands, to walk by faith and not by sight, to truly live that way, the problem with obeying those commands is not the commands themselves because John says they're not burdensome. The problem is everything that this world tries to throw at us when we choose to obey the will of God for our lives, okay? It's okay, John says, because our faith overcomes the world. He says, look, you don't have to fear anything that this world tries to throw at you because at the end of the day, everyone who belongs to God overcomes the world. Well, how do we do that, John? How do we overcome the world? He says, by our faith. Not by our wealth, not by our standing in the community, not by our uh, political influence or our popularity or power or intellect or position, no. He also says we don't overcome the world by convincing everyone around us that what we're doing for God really is the right thing really is what God wants us to do because when you decide to actually follow the will of God for your life, to walk by faith and not by sight, there will absolutely be people in your life who will tell you you're doing the wrong thing. There will be. There will be people who will go out of their way to try and stop you. There will be people who are convinced that you're not following the will of God. So look, if following God's will for your life is predicated upon everyone around you being in agreement that what you are about to embark upon is the right thing, then you might as well give up right now because that is never going to happen. 
And yet there are so many believers who never truly satisfy the calling on their lives because other people have convinced them that the calling is not possible or it is not profitable or that it's too risky or that it's too uncertain or there are too many unknowns. But look, what they're really saying is the calling of God on your life is the problem. The specific commands that God has given you to follow, that's the problem because they're too risky or too uncertain. They will, they will cost you too much. So it's the commands of God that are the problem. And John says, no, the will of God for your life is not the problem. His calling on your life is not the problem. It's the people who oppose his will for your life and your willingness to do their will for your life that is the problem. That's what was going on in the church. And again, there, there will never be a shortage of people who will tell you that what you're doing is the wrong thing for you to be doing because actually following the will of God for your life will require you to walk by faith. The truth is that's simply not something most people are willing to do. Most people would rather walk by sight and they'll expect you to do the same because that feels far less risky and far more predictable, but that's not how God called us to live. So what do we do? What's the answer? When we know we've heard from God and we know what we're supposed to do and yet the moment we decide to do it, it seems that all hell breaks loose and the entire world is coming against us. How do we overcome the world? The answer is by our faith. And, then, and listen, it's not faith in the calling. Certainly not faith in ourselves. That's what the false teachers were teaching in John's church. Just believe in yourself and what you can accomplish on your own. And John says, no, you've got it all wrong. The faith that overcomes the world is faith in Jesus Christ alone because he alone has overcome the world. Jesus himself said in the world, you will have tribulation, but take heart. I have overcome the world, John 16, 33. Okay? To believe in a Jesus who is anything less than the one who overcame the world, conquering even death itself, to believe in anything less is to believe in someone who does not have the power to see us through the calling that he himself has given us. It's precisely why so many people will try to convince you that your calling is not possible because they don't have enough faith in Jesus Christ to believe that he can actually accomplish in you the life that he's called you to live. Can you see the connection here between walking by faith and being able to fulfill your calling? Because it's not that you won't encounter difficulty along the way. You surely will. No, it's having enough faith in Jesus Christ, the one who has already overcome the world, that he will overcome the world in you as you walk by faith. The great Scottish Bible scholar Ian Howard Marshall once wrote, such faith is not a means of escape from conflict. On the contrary, it is right in the middle of evil's display of power that the believer is able to call its bluff and proclaim the superior might of Jesus. Okay? When John says this is the victory that has overcome the world, you can translate that from the ancient Greek directly as now this is the conquering power that has conquered the world. And what is that conquering power? John says our faith in Jesus Christ, okay? If you have any hope 
of answering the call of God on your life, which will absolutely require you to walk by faith, then you are going to have to have more faith in Jesus Christ than you do in the people around you. You're going to have to have more faith in Jesus Christ than in the circumstances that confront you. You're going to have to have more faith in Jesus Christ than anything this world throws at you because it is that faith alone that will overcome them all. That's what John is talking about as we continue. Let's keep reading. Verses 6 through 12. This is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ, not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. And the Spirit is the one who testifies because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the spirit and the water and the blood, and these three agree. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater, for this is the testimony of God that he has borne concerning his son. Whoever believes in the son of God is the testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar, because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his son. And this is the testimony that God gave us, eternal life, and, this, and the, uh, this life is in his son. Whoever has the son has life. Whoever does not have the son of God does not have life. So in his continuing rebuttal here of these false teachings that are swirling around the early church, John says that Jesus Christ came by water and blood. And although there's been some speculation over the centuries about what exactly John meant by that, and some would argue it today. It is widely accepted that John meant precisely what we have written in the oldest commentary that we have on this passage from 200 AD by the early church father and author Tertullian, who, by the way, he wrote extensively against Gnosticism, the very false teaching that began in John's church by these false teachers we've been learning about. And in that ancient commentary, Tertullian explains that when John refers to Jesus Christ coming by water and blood, he's referring to the water of Jesus' baptism and the blood of Jesus' crucifixion. In other words, Jesus was not only fully the Christ, but he was also fully the man, right? In unity, contrary to what these false teachers were teaching. And then John says there are three that testify, the spirit and the water and the blood, and these three all agree. Of course, we know that the spirit of Christ only testifies to the truth of Christ. In John 15, 26, Jesus said, when the helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, that's the Holy Spirit, he will bear witness about me. So just as the water and blood testify that Jesus is who he says he is, so too does the spirit testify. They're all in agreement. Charles Spurgeon once said, a priest was always ordained by sacrificial blood, cleansing water and oil that spoke of the anointing of the Holy Spirit. So Jesus also had these three witnesses to his priestly ministry. Not to mention that the Old Testament taught that every charge must be confirmed by two or three witnesses. So John is establishing that Jesus is not only the Christ, but that he came as a man. And as proof for both of those facts, we have his water baptism and the events related to it, namely the spirit descending upon him like a dove and the father confirming audibly that Jesus was the son of God. We have the blood of his crucifixion, which cleanses us from all unrighteousness. We have the spirit of God who has come to live inside of all true believers. And all three of those witnesses agree. 
that what Jesus testified about himself is pure, objective truth. And so John says, whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. But listen, the only way we can receive that testimony, that gospel message, is by faith in Jesus Christ, by believing in the Son of God, he says. John is explaining that our faith allows us to believe. Our faith in Christ allows us to believe the testimony about the Christ, which means we will never be able to fully believe what Jesus says until we fully believe who Jesus is. Until we're willing to accept that Jesus has the final word on all matters concerning this life and the next, until we're convinced that Jesus has all authority in heaven and earth, no matter what anyone else says, no matter what anyone else does, no matter what happens to us, no matter what we're dealing with, no matter our circumstances, until our faith in Jesus exceeds our faith in everyone and everything else, we will not be able to fully accept what he says to us or about us or for us. There will always be some measure of doubt, some measure of mistrust in what he's calling us to do because until we fully believe in who he is, we cannot fully believe in what he says. Peter's a prime example. When the disciples were in a boat together crossing the Sea of Galilee during a massive storm, when finally during the fourth watch of the night, according to the account in Matthew, which was between uh, 3 a.m. and 6 a.m., which means the disciples have been battling the storm for at least nine straight hours at this point. Jesus appears walking on the water, but when the disciples see him, they think he's a ghost because they don't yet fully believe that Jesus is who he says he is. And so he says to them, take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. To which Peter replies, Lord, if it is you, how telling is that? Very important to recognize here that Peter is not yet fully convinced that Jesus is who he says he is. So he replies, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. He should have known at that moment he was in trouble. Jesus said, come. And Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. At this point now, he knows it's Jesus. But when he saw the wind, is Peter walking by faith or is he walking by sight? When he saw the wind, he was afraid and beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. You see, at this point, Peter had more faith in what his circumstances could do to him than he did in what Jesus could do in him. And so Jesus immediately reaches out his hand, took hold of him, saying to him, oh, you of little, what? Faith. Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? Peter couldn't fully believe in what Jesus had called him to do because Peter didn't fully believe that Jesus was who he said he was. And until we have more faith in Jesus Christ than we do in our circumstances or in what other people are telling us or in whatever the storms of life are doing to us, then we will not be able to fully commit to his calling in our lives. Are we walking by faith? Are we walking by sight? Walking by faith means walking by faith in Jesus Christ, not by walking, uh, walking by faith in ourselves, not walking by faith in our circumstances, not walking by faith in others, right? And not walking by faith as long as things are going well for us either. 
No, walking by faith means faith in Christ, believing that he is God, all-powerful, all-knowing, all-present, immutable, unchanging, sovereign God, no matter what is happening in our lives or what anyone else is telling us, right? It's, it's only through faith in him that you will ever be able to fulfill the calling that he created you for, and yet we will never be able to fully believe what Jesus says until we fully believe who Jesus is. But once we accept that he is who he says he is, once our faith in him exceeds our faith in all others, then I'm telling you the possibilities of what he can do in us and through us become almost endless. Let's finish the chapter, verse 13, to the end. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life, and this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request that we have asked of him. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask and God will give him life. To those who commit sins that do not lead to death, there is sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin that does not lead to death. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who was born of God protects him and the evil one does not touch him. We know that we are from God and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. We know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true and we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. So John begins this final section of the chapter by reassuring all those who believe that Jesus is the Christ, that they in fact have eternal life, and therefore anything that we ask of him according to his will, he hears us and he answers us favorably. In other words, our faith gives us hope. When John says, and this is the confidence we have toward him, that we ask anything according to his will, he hears us, we know that what John means when he says God hears us is that he hears us in the sense that he's favorable toward our request because he goes on to say, and if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request that we've asked of him. Look, guys, this is a really big deal for true believers, those who actually choose to follow Christ to walk by faith because John is saying that as we put all of our faith in Christ, when we ask anything of him according to his will, it will be done for us. <laughs> there is so much hope in that statement and I'm telling you that is a confidence that needs to be recovered in the church today. In my opinion, there are far too many fearful gutless, impotent, and ineffective prayers being offered in the church today. Why? Because we lack the confidence that only comes when you spend your life walking by faith. Because when you do that, you experience Christ doing things in your life that you won't any other way. And it builds tremendous confidence in your prayers. We need to recover that kind of confidence that when we pray according to his will, that we know beyond a shadow of a doubt that every request will be answered and answered favorably. And that goes right back to having faith in Jesus Christ that he's able to answer every prayer, to meet every need, and even to guarantee eternal life after this life, no matter what we face in this world. 
And the key there is learning to pray with great faith according to his will. And obviously, we don't always know what his will is, right? Even Jesus, before his crucifixion, asked the Father to take the cup of suffering from him. But he ended the prayer with, nevertheless, not my will. That's Jesus praying. Not my will, but yours be done. Luke twenty-two forty-two. So we pray with conviction, yes. We pray with confidence, yes. Yet we also pray with commitment to his will above all others. And then we wait with great expectation that he will answer and do so favorably according to his will. And then John says something next uh, that seems like a totally different subject at first. He writes, if anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask and God will give him life to those who commit sins that do not lead to death. There is sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin that does not lead to death. <laughs> well, what is that about? Again, this is where context becomes very important because throughout the entire chapter, throughout the entire letter, really, John has been talking about those who have been born of God, uh, those who believe that Jesus is the Christ, those who abide in him, as opposed to those who don't. In other words, throughout the entire letter, John has been laying out the differences between those who are true believers, true Christians, and those who claim to be Christians, and yet they systematically reject the gospel and therefore Jesus Christ himself. And so when you read verses 16 and 17 in light of that context, it makes far more sense because true believers, as we all know, still sin. But the difference is we can pray for one another and through confession and repentance, he continually cleanses us, which means the sin that does not lead to death is the sin that true believers commit because forgiveness has been secured for us by his atoning sacrifice through Jesus Christ. So John says, when we pray for our brother, he shall ask and God will give him life. Uh, in ancient Judaism, it was commonly accepted that the prayers of exceptionally holy people carried great power. They were, they were notably effective prayers, even on behalf of other people, which is right in line with what James, the brother of Jesus, teaches us in his letter to the church, where he says, is any among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church. Let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he's committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working, James 5, 14 through 16. Notice James not only says the prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working, but he also says the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick. Well, who exactly is it who's offering the prayer of faith? It's not the sick person. No, it's the elders, the people who have been called upon to pray for the sick person. In fact, do you know there are examples all throughout Scripture of people praying for other people who had no faith at all, and yet they were healed? In Acts 3, Peter and John were going to the temple when a lame man asked them for money. He wasn't even asking them for healing, and yet they prayed for him, and the man was healed. Lazarus was dead for Pete's sake when Jesus came to him. Right, raised him from the dead. Lazarus didn't have any faith when he was dead, right? But Lazarus didn't need faith 
for healing. The lame man didn't need faith for healing because Jesus and Peter and John were righteous and full of all the faith that was needed for healing, okay? Please don't ever allow anyone to tell you that you're not being healed because you don't have enough faith. What about the person in a coma? Are they just out of luck? No, of course not, because they're not required to reach some level of faith before God will heal them. If anything, the person praying for you had better have faith for healing. And I'm not saying that if you're sick, by the way, you shouldn't have faith. We should all have faith no matter what condition we're in. And certainly God can and does heal people at times through their own faith. In fact, uh, he, he healed the woman with the issue of blood in Mark 5. He said to her daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. So, of course, faith matters for all of us. But the point is, we need each other to pray with and for one another because at times we're not going to have the faith that we should have. At times our faith is weak. That's why we need other people to pray with us because the prayer of other believers on our behalf can be incredibly effective even in regard to our own sin. And for true believers, John says that sin will not lead to death. But listen, for those who continue to reject the truth of Jesus Christ, those who reject that he is who he says he is, for them, their sin leads to death because they've rejected the only one who can cleanse them from their sin. So there's no hope for the one who continues to reject Jesus Christ without repentance. John is simply continuing here to talk about what he's been discussing all along, this stark contrast between those in the church who are true believers and those who are Christian in name only. Today we call them cultural Christians or nominal believers, those who identify themselves as Christians and maybe even attend churches and participate in activities historically related to Christianity, but don't actually have life-transforming, world-overcoming, mountain-moving faith in Jesus Christ, and therefore they don't actually accept or live by the gospel. They walk by sight instead of by faith. And so John is merely drawing out that comparison as he has been, not only to put a spotlight on the false teachers, those who have no hope, but also to reassure the true believers among them within the church that he, he has given us understanding, he says, so that we may know him who is true. We are in him who is true. In his son, Jesus Christ, he is the true God and eternal life. In other words, our faith gives us hope, hope that you cannot find anywhere else. Okay, look, God created you for a very specific purpose. There's nothing random about your life because there's nothing random about our creator. And yet, as you go through this life, there will be a myriad of things that will try to keep you from fulfilling the purposes that he created you for. At times, this world will come against you, but he says your faith will overcome the world. At times, you'll doubt the calling in your life. You'll, you'll doubt what he's told you to do, but he says, listen, your faith will allow you to believe. At times, actually choosing to live the life he's called you, to walk by faith instead of by sight. There are times when that will seem utterly hopeless and he says your faith will give you hope. And the key is walking by faith as a way of life. You see, because he's calling us 
to an entire lifetime of living by faith, not just a few highlights along the way, rather day by day by day, sometimes even moment by moment, he is calling us to walk by faith because every single step of the way, if you're truly following him, every step will require faith. And so I I say this to you uh, with all the love that I have for you. Okay, if you don't need faith to live the life that you're living right now, then you're probably not living the life that he created you for. Because he's called each one of us to walk by faith day by day. That is the only way we can live out our calling. That is the only way to overcome this world. That is the only way to live out what we say we believe. It's the only way to live our lives with unshakable hope when we walk by faith instead of by sight and yet that will require you to live beyond what you can see. That will require you to live beyond what you can save. That will require you to live beyond what you can achieve or accomplish by your own strength. So ask yourself, am I walking by faith or am I walking by sight? Are you living your life in such a way that if you don't have faith in him where he's leading you for each new day, then you will not make it? Or is everything so worked out in your life ahead of time that although you believe in Jesus Christ, you certainly don't have to depend upon him? Are you walking by faith? Are you walking by sight? It's not hard to tell because walking by faith is risky. Sometimes it is uncertain and there will always be seasons of great unknown and yet that is exactly how God wants us to live because that kind of living necessitates a daily dependence upon him, a constant faith in him. A willingness to take risks at every turn. A willingness to be told you're being irresponsible with your time and your money and your family and your future. A willingness to take a giant leap into the great unknown all because you're following Jesus Christ and his plan rather than this world and your own plan. You see, that's how, that's how those early Christians changed the world. It wasn't walking by sight. No, they changed the world because the lives that they lived were radically dependent upon Christ. See, that's what life looks like when you choose to walk by faith. Let's pray.